Support for Need to Know comes from the Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. Learn more at Carnegie.org. Welcome to the Need to Know podcast from the Wilson Center, a podcast for policymakers available to everyone. Always informative, nonpartisan, and relevant, we go beyond the headlines to understand the trend lines in foreign policy. Welcome back to the Need to Know podcast. And, you know, in this world today, there's a lot of shiny objects to follow. One of those, of course, in the technology area is deepfakes. We've been starting to hear a lot about deepfakes uh, in multiple ways and, and different challenges that they could pose. And I wanted to bring in one of our scholars. She's a public policy scholar with our Science Technology Innovation Program. And she's also a non-resident research fellow at the University of California at Berkeley's Center for Long-Term Security, Dr. Melissa Griffith. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, like I said, that deep fakes grab the headlines, but they're backed by this other technology that I've heard are called GANs. Now, to me, that sounds, you know, I, I start thinking about uh, the, the Huns invading. But what is a GAN? What is that? Well, it doesn't have anything to do with the Huns, but that's a good guess when we have this sort of alphabet soup um, that <laughs> tends to get deployed. So you're correctly pointing out that when we say deep fakes, there's a technology underpinning that, and that's GANs, Generative Adversarial Networks, GANs for short. Uh, it's a fairly recent innovation in deep learning, and deep learning is just a subset of artificial intelligence. So what do GANs do? How do we get deep fakes from those? What they basically do in a nutshell is they create new data instances that resemble your training data using adversarial training. That's a little bit kind of a mouthful, so I'm just gonna break it down a little bit for you. They really do two things. They consist of two things. A generator, the generator trains, it's trained to generate fake data, so it puts out fake information, and the discriminator, which is trained to discern fake information from real examples. So we can really simplify this by taking the example of a cat, which everybody knows and loves. The generator in this circumstance is trying to produce images of cats that look as real as possible, and then it sends those over to the discriminator, and the discriminator is trying to determine if that's a real or fake cat. And they iterate across this. So each time they generate a cat and then discriminate real or fake, they learn from that, and the discriminator gets better, and the generator gets better. So over time, you get better and better images of fake cats. So this is how you get these really good images of a cat where you couldn't tell the difference between your neighbor's photo of a cat and a cat that's been generated off the internet. And that's really cool. You did a, a demonstration of this in a briefing that we had you on where you actually showed the pictures of the cats. Yeah. Uh, one was your neighbor's yes. cat and one was a, a deep fake cat that was generated by one of these GANs. And people could not tell the difference unless they knew what to look for. And I think we'll get into that a little bit here in, a, in just a second. But it seems like everything that has ever been invented has been in, used for some nefarious purpose. And I think that's what people are most worried about is how GANs and deep fakes are going to be used for for ill. What are the ways that we're starting to see that that we need to be watching out for? Yeah, so I think when we, we talk about GANs, it's important to recognize that they can produce a lot of different types of data. 
So we tend to fixate on images, video, audio, but they can also do things like handwriting, for example. But often when we say deep fake, we mean that kind of image of a person or a cat in this case, a fake cat. This cat does not exist.com is sort of a place you can go if you're looking to see a lot of unreal cats generated in real time. Or we're thinking about that video that looks like the president or a political leader is actually talking and speaking. So when I'm thinking about kind of deep fakes and their nefarious side of the equation, it really, to me, falls into three broad buckets of bad, evil, nefarious use. Uh, the first is targeting individuals. The second is much more crime-oriented. And the third is national security-oriented. And I'm just going to quickly walk through those. Uh, the targeting individual space, here you see a lot of examples, numerous examples, um, particularly of these deep fakes being used to target women. Uh, examples of this include things like revenge porn, where you would create something that's not real, um, but is used to sort of sexualize women and punish them in that way. Nina Jankowitz, also here at the Woodrow Wilson Center with the Science and Technology Innovation Program, has written extensively on that, um, the kind of weaponization of deepfakes against women. So I would highly recommend um, looking at some of her work. And that's really at the individual level, weaponizing this against other individuals for punishment or retribution uh, in that space. There's also the crime level here that sometimes doesn't get talked about as much. Um, but you could imagine, for example, thinking you're having a Zoom call with your financial advisor about your accounts, and in fact, it is not your financial advisor on the other end. Uh, it's a deep fake video filter, and you are giving that person information about your finances, and they use that to um, hoodwink you in a, and kind of get some of your information to steal some of your money. So there's sort of a criminal aspect to this as well uh, and being used in that space. Then you have that third category, which is the international security level, and that's much more where I sit when it comes to emerging technology is the intersection with national security. And there's a variety of nefarious uses, and many of these we're seeing already. So one is that you can use this information in the context of influence operations by foreign and unfortunately even domestic actors. Uh, these can be kind of information such as videos or photos, voice memos that target political leaders, discredit social movements. You could also imagine an incident of a deep fake that say a generated video of members of ISIS executing an American that's not real, and that information's released in an effort to shape U.S. policy discussions um, or increase tensions at home or even tensions between us and our allies. So there's this kind of influence operation component. They can also be coupled in with cyber operations, which have been making a lot of news at the moment, the kind of cyber components. Those can be hack and leak operations. Um, so this should sound somewhat familiar. A nefarious actor hypothetically hacks a system, releases a bunch of information, say a senior politician's emails. And within those emails, those big data dumps, they've inserted some fabricated data. So that would be a hack and leak. Um, there's a quieter version of that as well, which is you compromise a system and you insert data that is fake into that system without the operators of that system realizing that data is there or that it's fake. And the last one that I would want to talk about at the national security level, which I don't think often gets a lot of attention, but is equally important as the others, is that deep fakes can just be used to add noise or uncertainty into an environment. So generating data, we often sort of think about that as you're trying to convince somebody that something untrue is true, um, but it can also point people in a lot of different directions if you insert a lot of different data into a situation. It can complicate our understanding of what's happening or what has happened. It makes it harder to identify what we need to do in that situation, what's real or not real. So you can do this kind of eroding trust and increase opportunities for states to make mistakes by just making the data environment messier than it already was. So that sounds terrifying, um, as particularly the one, the example you used of the financial advisor. Um, I'm curious, though, 
how much of this is really what we're afraid the technology can do versus what we have already seen it do in the nefarious action portion? Yeah, so some of this has already been borne out. I think there's, um, at the individual level, this has been used widely already. Um, and that is actually the area where we see the most of this happening, although we rarely talk about it. We tend to talk about these other areas that are now emerging. Um, but you do see these at the other levels, right? So you do see information being inserted in releases. Um, you've seen, which like recently with the EU, a group of European parliamentarians thinking they were having conversations with Russian opposition leaders. And in fact, on those Zoom calls, that was not a Russian opposition leader. That was a person using a deep fake filter that made them look like that person. They had whole meetings thinking they were having that conversation with someone else. Um, and that can really escalate if you're thinking about foreign policy decisions and the types of relationships um, that people have with each other. As a, another example of where COVID has heightened some of these, because much more of this that might have been happening face to face is now happening virtually. Right. And, and if you're looking at a video quality degradation, that kind of maybe can hide some of the glitches that are still present in the technology. Absolutely. And I think another area that um, is worthy of note at this moment is deepfakes are the shiny new object, as you sort of call them, and that is true. But the majority of influence operations, the majority of fake information, disinformation, are what we would call cheap fakes. Um, so they're not these exquisite, more exquisite, like this looks like, really looks like a cat, or I really thought I was talking to the Russian opposition leader. They're cheap fakes, they're easier to identify. And often that cheaper fake does the job good enough, right? Well enough um, to lead to so to distrust, to cause people to make decisions based on that information, to share that information on social media. Um, often that cheap fake does the job well enough. So we tend to fix on deep fakes, but there's a whole other category of disinformation uh, that predates this that is still the majority of the cases we're looking at. I believe we had a, a episode with Meg King about this, and she mentioned the, uh, and this has probably been about a year or so ago, but she mentioned the one with Nancy Pelosi where it had just been slowed down just enough to where it sounded like she was drunk, but yet still looked like, uh, you know, it didn't, it wasn't noticeably slowed down, but just slowed down enough to make her speech sound slurred and slow. Yeah, which would look, be used for discrediting. Um, there was another example with President Biden, where it made it look like he was saying the wrong state, right? So there's a, a lot of examples of that in the political context. So we, we've spent some time on the bad things, but that's not why this technology was made, right? It wasn't made to create revenge porn and fake opposition leaders in Russia. What are the good things that GANs can be used for? What are they, what was their purpose designed for when they were created? I'm so glad you brought this up because I think sometimes people have this image of sort of technologists developing things for completely nefarious purposes. And they sort of ask the question of like, how the heck did this happen? Um, and it, the reality is when this was invented in 2014 by Ian Goodfellow and his colleagues, they weren't doing it for nefarious purposes. They were really trying to solve a real complex problem facing artificial intelligence um, or machine learning at the time. And the issue they were trying to solve was that machine learning algorithms had been really good at or had excelled at things like categorization. Um, so you could send them a lot of pictures of cats and they could say, that's a cat, that's a dog, that's a horse. They could differentiate those things based on the images or the data you are feeding them. They could categorize. Um, but they weren't really good at generating data. So they couldn't generate an image of a horse that looked real or they couldn't generate an image of a cat that looked real. They could only categorize. 
And it's sort of like, okay, that sounds like an interesting theoretical problem, but why would you even want to generate data in the first place? And that really comes back to the foundations of artificial intelligence. So if you sort of step back and think about AI, it's underpinned by three core pillars. You have data, you have algorithms, and you have computational power. And the problem with data, one third of that kind of triad, is data can be very costly to acquire. Um, Sometimes it can be difficult to access, right? Think about things like privacy concerns. And it also could be in a space where we just don't have a lot of data. So maybe we don't have as many scans or scenarios or images that we might otherwise want. So you can really face some data constraints as you're trying to build out better algorithms, better models. Um, Let's take a real world example of this because I think it will really drive it home. So let's say, and this is a real world example, you're trying to train a model to identify the presence of brain tumors in CT scans. And you want this to be fairly accurate across a wide variety of scans, scan qualities, um, but also a wide variety of tumors and a wide variety of what might be like false negatives, something that's not actually a brain tumor. Well, medical data faces some real constraints, one of which is just patient privacy, and another is just the diversity of scans you probably have access to. And GANs in this situation actually offer a viable way to generate low-cost, diverse, representative CT scans to train those models on. And the better trained those models are, the more accurate they are when deployed in the real world um, for that purpose. So there's a lot of really positive examples here. Um, Those can be kind of the use of being able to share medical data now because it's not actually real data. You could share it between hospitals. Again, that patient privacy um, components. You can use training data, generate a lot of different scenarios for driverless cars. Right? You don't want them to encounter a scenario they maybe have never encountered before. Once on the road, the more diversity you can give them in the training stage, the better. So we often talk about the deep fakes, but I think it's important to understand GANs are also really helpful from everything from cancer detection, vaccine development, intelligence collection around sort of satellite images and how we interpret those, risk modeling and testing to address cybersecurity concerns in complex systems, um, helps us address privacy considerations around our data, And then it's also incredibly useful for things like modeling climate change, another really complex problem. So there's this whole other positive side to this, which is really why this technology was developed. That's that's really interesting, is particularly on kind of helping with the the healthcare side of things. Um, But it doesn't the trend line doesn't look good. Right. So it, it, it seems like the negative could overshadow the good things that happen. What do you see from a policy perspective how this might be handled? And since, of course, politicians would care about deepfakes, especially if they start being used on them, what are some things that Congress can do or should be considering when they're looking at this? Yeah. So I'm not sure I would say the negatives outweigh the positives because I think there are significant positives. Um, but I would say there are significant negatives well, I would, we have I, to I make. I guess it. I'd clarify that in, in a political sense, right? If, you know, we've seen over the years, you know, how Facebook went from being this great organizational tool and, you know, everybody loved it during campaign season and all that to now there's all of this concern about Facebook, right? So I, I'm just saying from the political sense, you have that possibility that you know some deep fake could come out that really turns the tide on this and suddenly congress it it is overshadowed with all the negative yeah i no i agree i think with any dual use technology you're looking to capture as much of the promise while mitigating as much of the risks as possible um and so i think in the kind of policy space there's a couple things that i think are important to recognize um things to consider so the first and we briefly talked about this is just that um Deepfakes are a part of a broader problem, 
right? So they're part of a disinformation problem that extends far beyond deep fakes into things like cheap fakes uh, as well. And so I think often we fixate on the deep fake part when we're looking at solutions, but there's a lot of solutions already being developed in, for disinformation in general that this is sort of a subcategory of. So I would sort of push us not to think of it as an entirely new problem, though there are some characteristics that set it apart. So I think that's one thing that's super important to keep in mind. When we're thinking about kind of opportunities for solutions, these are gonna sound really familiar if you've noticed information more broadly. One is the education space. Um, so this is that broader effort around what sometimes is called inoculating your population. And the focus here is really on helping people learn to question what they're seeing, what they're hearing, doing some critical thinking and doing a little bit of research, not just assuming everything you see is true. Um, in the case of deep fakes, that can be kind of much more about clues. So you sort of referenced this uh, earlier on, which is if you're looking at some of those pictures of the cats, like these cats do not exist, you can still sort of see a little bit of fuzziness around the ears that might give them away. Um, sometimes the blurriness of the background might give it away. If you're looking at a video, there's still sometimes what we would call like jerkiness or like hiccups often in the kind of movement of the person or in their audio recording their voice themselves, it can look a little distorted. Uh, images, hats, for some reason, hats or head coverings is another area that can cause some of these um, generators a little bit of trouble. So those can be kind of giveaways. But then also you don't need to be a technical person. You don't need to know all those clues sometimes to figure this out, right? Um, is this a statement that that person was likely to make? Is this really out of character for them? Um, does the image seem to neatly slot into a particular agenda or narrative? Is What's the source? Are other sources showing the same thing? So that kind of much more critical thinking in the media that we engage with. So there's those education initiatives. Um, I think there also is important to note here that those education initiatives, we typically think of them being targeted to the general public, uh, but these also need to happen within our political sphere. So the policy community is often the target of this type of misinformation, our military and our intelligence communities as well. So really thinking about that training at home within our halls of government, not just for our general population. So you have education. That's not the only thing. You can also work on technical solutions around detection. So lines of effort here include things like the effort out of DARPA, uh, which is focusing on detecting. So the discriminator half of the generator discriminator equation. So how do you know that something's fake? Um, again, computers and algorithms tend to be a lot better at this than humans because they're looking at things that our naked eye maybe wouldn't pick up to help you know that that's not a real image. But there's also some really interesting work that flip that coin to the other side. So not how do you detect if something is fake once it's already out. So if I generate a nefarious picture of a cat and put it on the interwebs, how do you know that's fake? But actually saying, how do we certify something as authentic when it's being created? Um, so the effort there is out of the Coalition for Content Providence and Authenticity. And that is a working group. It has members from Adobe, Arm, BBC, Intel, Microsoft, TruePix, so a real diversity of industry players, and they're looking at asking the camera to authenticate an image or video at the point of recording. So that's about provenance of digital content, not proving something is fake after the fact, but sort of certifying as an authentic from creation. So there's sort of technical remediation methods there that would require you to work pretty heavily with industry if you're in Congress to understand what those are um, and how we can kind of encourage the development of those over time. Then you have the kind of regulatory content management sort of components there. So platforms are trying to pass some rules to limiting degrees around banning certain types of generated content in their network. Um, several U.S. states have adopted laws that ban deep fakes in certain contexts, uh, kind of thinking about legal contexts, legal consequences. So, And that's very much about imposing costs, right, on the behavior once it's been carried out. And that happens at an individual, criminal, and national security level. You're really just looking to lay out some rules for the road 
impose some costs when those rules for the road are violated on the violators. So I think there's all of those kind of various pieces. The last I would flag is this is an iterative process. You need to have some way to assess the state of play uh, as we work on ways ourselves in the United States to inoculate our population, to regulate these use cases, and to provide technical solutions. Our adversaries are also doing the same. They're innovating in this space and the technology is evolving. Um, so we need to be thinking about this kind of in terms of agility and being able to keep up with the current kind of methods, tools, tactics, procedures that are being deployed. And we also at the same time need to be a little bit careful about how we deploy that policy. Uh, because I think as we've already discussed, a lot of these are legitimate use cases for this technology and sometimes deep fakes run a little close to things like protected speech, expression concerns, creative pursuits. So figuring out how to square that circle. Right. So you don't want to really have this big red button that the government has in a regulatory sense. But there's some things that industry can do. And I, I, when you were bringing that up, you know, of the point of recording and, and what is on the networks, can these generative adversarial networks, these GANs, can they detect deepfakes? Can they be used in the same way to kind of turn it back on these, on the same, the same technology? Yeah, no, you're, you're definitely in the right spot. So if you're thinking about a GAN, it has those two components, the generator and the discriminator. And the discriminator is your kind of deep fake detector. That is its job in that system. Um, the, the sort of tension there, and this is what DARPA is really working on, is you want to have the discriminator win if you're concerned about deep fakes, right? You don't want the generator to be able to beat your discriminator. Uh, and that's really where the tension is because those two things are in competition. They're progressively getting better over time. So every time you have a successful example of a discriminator, the generator is also learning from that and sort of how did I get detected, right? What tipped them off that I was doing something that was nefarious that wasn't real? So it is iterative, but that is very much sort of the technical detection stages of that, which is like we should build some really good detection. I like to wrap these up with a sort of on the horizon question because, and and I think it's especially something that we need to talk about in this particular conversation because it's a lot especially when it comes to technology their policy usually is behind the curve and by the time you know you have a quickly evolving technology by the time changes in regulatory functions or legislation come out it can take years for that kind of stuff to develop and it may come too late to to handle tomorrow's deep fakes and next year's deep fakes and things like that so looking ahead, what do you see on the horizon that we should really be watching out for in this space? Yeah. So um, before I answer that question, if I may, I think you made a comment that I'd love to foot stomp, which is the kind of sometimes slow moving nature of policy. And I think it really behooves us. It sort of points out that we need to be careful about the types of regulations and policies that we put in place. You don't want to be so technically specific that you're not agile. And so that it really kind of goes back to those earlier discussions we were having about making sure you're focusing on the solutions, the types of things you want to see happen, and not necessarily specifying the exact way to get you there, because the exact way is going to change as both our adversaries and the technology change. In terms of looking to the future, I think there's a lot of ways that this will evolve um, in positive and negative ways. From my area as a sort of national security focused person, I think there's two trends I'm particularly interested in and I think we should be keeping an eye on. Um, the first kind of relates to the digital moment we find ourselves in with COVID, with a lot of our meetings now becoming more and more increasingly virtual. Some of that will be backwalked a little bit, but I think a lot of that stuff will actually remain. And kind of reminding us of that example of the European parliamentarians who held 
sort of meetings with someone who was not, in fact, who they thought they were holding meetings with, the Russian opposition figures. I think this is a really interesting evolution because a lot of the deep fakes we've been talking about up to this point were somewhat static, right? So it was an image that was released onto the internet or a video that was released and picked up by media uh, that was kind of a static thing that people engaged with, but the content wasn't necessarily evolving. And you're seeing this trend now with these much more interactive video kind of real-time filters where this can be an actual impersonation in real time. So conversations with political leaders that aren't actually the political leader you're thinking you're talking to. So I think that's an interesting dynamic to a much more interactive dynamic form of deepfakes versus this much more static form that we've seen previously. So that's a trend I would, I would keep an eye on. I think the second uh, goes back to an earlier point I kind of made, which is I think to me, one thing that's not getting discussed enough, which will only increase, um, is concerns around miscalculation, uh, misdirection, misperception when we're thinking about inserting noise into foreign policy spaces. Um, so again, we often think about deep fakes as this attempt to convince you that something that is fake is real, but they're also just as useful and effective at creating uncertainty in climates. Did something happen? What happened? Convincing you like how that happened, creating a lot of uncertainty in that space. Um, and uncertainty and misperception in national security spaces are concerning words for a variety of reasons. So I think thinking also just about this kind of data-rich environment, data overload environment we're in, um, and how well positioned that is to have a lot more noise inserted that can slow us down, both in terms of our processes for understanding what happened and also kind of increasing the likelihood of maybe getting some of these decisions wrong because we're drawing the wrong conclusions on the data we have. Well, it sounds like I'm going to need to start employing some of this technology to verify the identity of my guests on the podcast. So that the ones that I'm doing here over Zoom, you know, you say you're Melissa Griffith, but I don't know, right? They, I could be Meg King. Could be Meg King, it, you know, and, 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 or you could be, you know, a, a Russian infiltrator. And that's a, that's a scary prospect when you're, when you're thinking about trying to move the needle on policy discussions and everything else. But uh, Dr. Melissa Griffith, thank you so much for joining us, if that is your real name. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the, on the Need to Know podcast today to explain this stuff to us. It was my pleasure.